Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Well, thank you, Dr. Aiken. It will be really easy to do Dr. Aiken's funeral because I've asked him, you know, so if you die, what do you want me to say at your funeral? And he said, I only want you to say one thing, James. I said, what's that? He said, I want you to look into my casket and say, look, he's moving. <laughs> so it'll be kind of easy to, um, easy to do that. Well, th- this is going to be a very unusual message, and let me tell you why. This is not an inspirational message, so I'll get that out right up front. It's, it's an informational message. And it's not a message so much to revive us. It's really a message to remind us. And, and it really kind of comes out of a couple of things. I'm um, spending a lot of time uh, and, and really pouring my life into something that may probably never get anywhere. But there's a couple in our church that um, has um, a child. And uh, that child has totally walked away from the faith um, is not a child anymore, and, um, and has, has just uh, kind of fallen into uh, this whole cultural trap of uh, gender identity and so on and so forth. So um, I just took it upon myself to, to reach out to, to this person. And um, Danny knows about this. We've talked about it, and I've sent him some material. And it's, 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 it's a hard slog. It's, it's just a tough go. Um, this person is kind of a pseudo-intellectual, um, kind of an amateur scientist, so to speak. And so uh, we've, we've really been, uh, it's, it's, it's been making progress literally by not the inch, but by the millimeter. So uh, we, we've been, I've been meeting with this person for about a year. And so um, I, I really started with Jesus and the resurrection and realized that that, that was way too far down the road. So we started over last, uh, last month, and, and I said, look, here's what we're going to do. And, and I read a book that really helped me in this. I said, we're, we're going to just compare our worldviews. You've got a worldview, I've got a worldview. Everybody has a worldview. And I said, so let's just start over. Let's pretend we haven't even discussed anything whatsoever. And I said, I just want to know what you believe about the big questions of life. Who are you? Where did you come from? Why are you here? Where are you going? I said, I just want to know what you, I don't, know what, I don't want to know why you believe it, just want to know what you believe. And then I'm going to share with you what I believe. And then after we compare what we believe, then we're going to examine the evidence. And we're going to just see whether, what, which worldview best fits the evidence. I am not a believer in Jesus Christ, and I am not a Christian just because I was raised in a Christian home or just because that's kind of what I've always believed or because uh, it's just kind of the cool thing to do because in America, it's not even any longer the cool thing to do. I, I am a believer in Christ and I am a Christian because I am absolutely convinced that the Christian worldview absolutely best fits the evidence of everything I see and everything I experience. So with that as a backdrop, I believe that the single most important person who has ever lived or ever will live is Jesus Christ. I believe the single greatest book that's ever been written or will be written is the book that I hold in my hand. And I believe those two things are true because of two other things I believe are true. I believe Jesus is the Son of God, and I believe the Bible is the Word of God. 
Now, those two things are important for one simple reason, because what we really know of the Son of God is only found in the Word of God. So therefore, the two most important beliefs of my life come down to one of two things. Either this book is just like any other book, no different, or of all the books in the world that have ever been written, there really is no book like this book. And the one thing that separates this book from every other book that ever has been written or ever will be written is it claims to be uniquely the Word of God. It claims to be the written revelation of God Himself and the only written revelation of God that we have or ever will have. Now, what I've told this person is, as I've made this statement, that claim deserves to be put under a microscope. It ought to stand up to the most rigorous examination of anyone that wants to look at it, whether it be a philosopher or a scientist or an ethicist or a moralist. It doesn't matter. It should be able to stand up under anybody's microscope and still be standing when the smoke is cleared. Because if we believe the Bible is divinely authored by God and divinely given by God, then we also ought to believe, therefore, that the four Gospels accurately tell us about this great man, this one-of-a-kind man named Jesus Christ. So here's what I want to do today. I want to put this belief to a test in a very specific way. And this is what I want to say. And I, and and Dr. Aiken, you know this. I didn't hear this when I went to seminary. In fact, I heard just the opposite. In fact, a lot of what I'm going to tell you today, I spent seven years at a seminary trying to teach me that everything I'm going to tell you today is absolutely not true. Cannot be true. Should not be true. We shouldn't even worry whether or not it is true. If this Bible is God's Word, if this book is God's Word, one thing has to be true. That is, it has to be true on everything it talks about. No exceptions. Everything it touches on, it must tell the truth. And here's the simple reason why. God is a God of truth. So if this is God's Word, then everything it say must be related and must be truth. That that would include not just theology, That would include things like science. That would include things like history. Now, I've shared with our church many times why I believe the Gospels are historically reliable books and why I believe they contain historically reliable truths. But I just want to kind of step out a little bit. And I want to admit I'm not a scientist, okay? I I get that. I'm, I'm not. But if, again, the Bible is God's Word, then I have to believe it should be true in the area of science. And there's a simple philosophical reason why that has to be true. At its core, science is the pursuit of truth. Nobody disputes that. Well, since all truth is God's truth, then there really cannot be and should not be a conflict between science and the Bible. Now, you may stop me and you may say, all right, James, wait a minute. You're not even a scientist. You know, you don't have a degree in science. What in the world's giving you this idea? Why would you even say something like this? Well, it, become, it comes out of something that Jesus himself said. And in John chapter 8, verse 32, here's what Jesus said. He said, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now, this is is a very simple statement, not hard to understand. Jesus said, once you know any truth, whatever that truth is, and you know that it's true, it will automatically set you free from any error. Now, here's where we make a mistake. We automatically think, well, now, Jesus is just talking about spiritual things. Well, that's not what I read in the Bible. He didn't say if you know spiritual truth, it will set you free from spiritual error. He said if you know the truth, brackets, about anything, if you know the truth about anything, the truth will set you free. So 
Once you know any truth, you're set free from any error. Any error. Well, that's not, if that's true spiritually, it also has to be true scientifically. It also has to be true mathematically. It also has to be true historically. It also has to be true theologically. But that begs another question. Okay, Jesus, I believe you. You said, you know, if we will know the truth, the truth will set you free. I just got one question. So where do you find truth? Well, then I turn to John 17, 17, and Jesus says, sanctify them in the truth. And then he says, your word is truth. He didn't just say your word tells or says what is true. He said, your word is truth. Now, when I put all of this together, then my mind tells me, all right, if God is truth and the source of truth and his word is truth, then it doesn't matter whether you're studying astronomy or quantum physics or microbiology. It should lead us not only into scientific truth, it ought to lead us into truth that will square with scriptural truth. That's why I have an increasing problem with people who want to so quickly bowl the Bible off when it comes, say, to the area of science. Because we, you listen, we hear it all the time. Look, let science deal with science. Let the Bible deal with things that really, you know, don't matter and never the twain shall meet. Only one problem with that, it's wrong. Because if, is there, if there is such a thing as scientific truth, and if there is such a thing as scriptural truth, then those paths may cross each other, but they'll never conflict with, conflict with each other. Because if you find a truth that you believe is true in science, and you blind the truth you believe in Scripture that is true in Scripture, and yet those two contradict, one of those two things therefore cannot be true. But if they're both truth, and if all truth is God's truth, then they must absolutely converge into the same tree, street called truth. And by the way, I'm not even the guy that even said that, and neither is Jesus. One physicist put it this way. He said a legitimate conflict between science and religion cannot exist. He said, science without religion is lame. Religion without science is blind. I think that guy knew what he was talking about. His name was Albert Einstein. So I give him a little credit, okay? He's the one that said that. So to put it another way, I believe that science and scriptures, a scripture are friends, not enemies. So what I came to do today is this. It may be unusual to do this, but I really thought it through. I thought, you know, even for seminary students, even for young theologues like you, it's kind of good to got to go back and kind of be reminded of some basics, to be reminded of kind of maybe you might want to say, even you might even want to call this a little bit kind of theology one-on-one. There's three things I think hopefully we could all agree on that we could believe. Number one, we can believe in the sacred authority of the Bible. If the word is truth, if what Jesus said about the Bible is true, we can believe in the sacred authority of the Bible. One of my favorite apologists is a Catholic. His name is Peter Kreeft. I love to read Dr. Kreeft. He's brilliant. And he wrote a wonderful book where he records this imaginary conversation between a skeptic and a Christian. The conversation goes like this. The skeptic says, well, do you think there will ever be any contradiction between science and religion? The Christian, certainly not. God doesn't contradict himself. The skeptic says, God, God doesn't come into science. Christian, he sure does. He wrote two books, Nature and Scripture. And the two books can never contradict each other because they come from the same author who is truth himself and truth can never contradict truth. Dr. Kreeft is totally right. That imaginary dialogue speaks volumes. Let me tell you why. 
I've heard it and you've heard it. I heard this ad infinitum when I was in college and I went to a erstwhile Baptist college. I heard it for seven years at the seminary. They say, look, the Bible is not a scientific textbook. That's true. It is basically a book about religion. Well, that's true. What's not true is the conclusion because the implication is, now, if the Bible talks about faith or the Bible talks about morality, you might believe it. But when it gets into scientific areas, it may or may not get it right and you shouldn't expect it to. So you've got this mentality today where people want to put the science, they want to put science in the living room and they want to put the Bible in the attic and they want to keep one away from the other. The problem is that really doesn't solve what people see to be the real problem for this reason. You can't divide theology from science. You can't divide theology from history. Science and history and theology are not three distinct branches of knowledge. They're just three different ways in which we view the world around us. And by the way, many times they can't be separated. Let me just give you one great example. Let's take the resurrection of Jesus. I got a question for everyone in this room. Let's take the resurrection. So was the resurrection a theological event? Or was the resurrection a historical event? Or was the resurrection a scientific event? Now, the answer is easy. The answer is yes. It's a real easy answer. Historically, it is the most significant event that's ever happened, if indeed it did and we believe it. But let's just wait a minute. Okay, so you're telling me that you believe a body that was once dead is now physically and literally alive. Yes. Well, now, wait a minute. You just got into the area of anatomy. You just got into the area of physiology. You just got into the area of biology. You just got even into the area of physics. You just got into the area of chemistry. And oh, by the way, it is the basis of all Christian theology. So the truth of the matter is, if you take out the scientific truth of the resurrection and you take out the historical truth of the resurrection, all you have left is Rudolf Bultmann. There's no theological truth left. And again, if all truth is God's truth, and if God's word is truth, then wherever the Bible speaks, it must be truth, whether that speaks of a theological principle, an historical event, or a scientific matter. Let's think about the word science. Some of you probably, maybe you're like my, my son, Jonathan. He majored in biology at Liberty University. So he knows a little bit more, loves a lot more about science than I do. We were talking about this not long ago. Think about the word science. The word science comes from the Latin word sentia, which simply means knowledge. Yet, we believe in the omniscience of God, the omniscientia of God. Omniscientia simply means all knowledge. Well, if sentia, if science is knowledge and God is omniscia, all knowledge, then evidently the God of the Bible is the God of science and the God of the Bible is the God of nature. And therefore, again, if the Bible is God's word, then when it does touch on a matter of nature or it does touch on a matter of science, it must be scientifically correct. And then, by the way, keep in mind, just one thing I've learned in a few years of living, and I've lived long enough to see it. The sacred truths of this book never change. But scientific truth changes all the time, all the time. How many scientific truths did we live by just 100 years ago that we now think and know is nonsense? I mean, listen, scientists can't even make up their mind on what's good for you and what's not. I mean, one day you ought to take vitamin E, the next day it causes cancer. 
But one day, one day you ought to take fish oil, the next day it constipates you. I mean, they, they, they can't make up their mind. As a matter of fact, commenting on these constant changes, a chemist said this. He said, no one can be certain about what further research will show, but of one thing I am sure, if I am around in 20 years to talk about this stuff, I won't be saying the same thing as I'm saying now, that's the way science works. He's right. So I'm just simply raising a principle that deserves a hearing. I'm just asking you to think about it. If the Bible is true, and that's what Jesus called it. He said, your word is truth. If the word of God is truth, then wherever it speaks, it speaks truth. And that should be true, therefore, in the area of science. And that leads me to say the second thing. If we believe in the sacred authority of the Bible, then we should believe in the scientific accuracy of the Bible. Now, again, I get it. Bible's not a scientific textbook. I, I understand that. It was not primarily to tell us about the heavens that we can see. It was primarily to tell us about the heaven that we can't see. No, the Bible's not written primarily to tell us about the natural world, but about the supernatural world. But whereas science deals with the physical, the Bible deals with the purposeful. And I, I, I get all that. The Bible is primarily concerned with trust, not test tubes. The focus of the Bible is not chemistry, it's Christ. Science leads to information, the Bible leads to transformation. I get all of that. But if this book is the word of God and therefore it is truth, there cannot be any scientific error in it whatsoever. True science should always be in harmony with scripture and scripture properly interpreted should always be in harmony with true science. And there are multiplied instances in the Bible. This is something that amazes me. You can't even read the, you can't even get past the first verse of the Bible without talking about science of the Bible. For example, think about this. Let's go all the way back to the first book, Genesis. Let's go all the way back to the first verse. Don't even get out of the gate and the Bible starts off talking about science. You say, well, James, what do you mean? Well, science looks at the universe in five areas, right? Time, space, matter, power, and motion. That's the way science looks at the universe. Well, around 1500 BC, Moses wrote these words. He said, in the beginning, I think that's time, God created, I think that's power, the heavens, I think that's space, and the earth, I think that's matter, and the Spirit of God was hovering, I think that's motion, over the face of the waters. But then we go from the general to the specific, to the specific, because in verse 14, here's what we read, and God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons, and for days, and for years. And I want to go, Moses, how did you know that? Who, who, who told you that? You said, what do you mean? Well, through the marvels of astronomy, we now know that a, a year is the time required for the earth to travel around the sun. We also know that the seasons are caused by the changing position of the earth in relation to the sun. We also know that a month is the time it takes for the moon to revolve around the earth with respect to its position to the sun. Now, how in the world did Moses know that for almost three thousand years ago. How did he know that? And from the very beginning, God has even actually encouraged scientific research and the discipline of science itself. You said, where do you get that idea? 
You remember the first job that God gave to Adam in the Garden of Eden? If you don't, here it is. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens. And he brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heaven and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. And we've read that many times, never thought about how that deals with science, but that's fascinating. Because there's one thing I did learn from my son, Jonathan, and it's one of the first things you learn if you want to become a scientist. And you'll learn that the very essence of the discipline of science is naming things. It's called taxonomy. And it was God who started science off. It was God who got the first man involved in the first science project. Well, it gets better. If you know anything about science, you know that the two fundamental laws of science are the first and second principle, or what we know as the law of thermodynamics. Now, in case you forgot your physics, the law of thermodynamics simply says, or is known as the law of conservation of energy. And here's what the first law of thermodynamics says. You can neither create matter and energy nor destroy it. That is, neither matter nor energy can be created or destroyed. You can change it from one form into another, but you can't create it and you can't destroy it. Now, that's not surprising because you find that law in the very first verse of chapter 2. Where, where we read, thus the heavens and the earth were finished. Now we've read that many times and we thought, okay, so what does that mean? It was finished. In other words, God said, no more matter, no more energy. I've created all the matter there ever will be. I've created all the energy there ever will be. You can transform it from one form into another. You can change it, but you can neither create it nor destroy it. Well, how about the second law of thermodynamics, known as the law of, of, of increasing entropy, which simply states that all physical processes uh, of every ordered system over time tends to become more disordered, okay? Here's a great example. I get to stay in Dr. Aiken's home most of the time. Last night, I couldn't, he came in late, so I stayed in the haunted, I mean, the hunt house uh, over there. But I've been, in, I've been in Danny's home many, many times. Every time I go, his office and his study is in bigger disarray. Every time, every time. It gets harder and harder even to get through the library to get to where they live. That's just the law of second dynamics. That's the law of interest. It, the universe is running down. It's wearing out. Energy is becoming less available. We've known that for many, many years. Well, where did we get that idea? Well, the psalmist said in Psalm 102, verse 25, of old you laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish. They're going to run down. It's going to be increasingly in disarray, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe and they will pass away. Second law of thermodynamics. Hey, let's get away from science for a minute. How about geography? You know, the Bible talks about geography. It's not a geography book, but it does. And, and I, I'm, I'm sure you've read this, but you know, Christopher Columbus, when he sailed the world, he was a believer. And he knew if you sail the world, you're not going to fall off the end because he had read the Bible. And in the book of Isaiah, it says, it is he who sits above the circle of the earth. And its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. Now, what's interesting in is the Hebrew word for circle there is the Hebrew word kug. And that word literally means a sphere. Isaiah didn't say that God sits above a world which is shaped like a circle that you draw on a piece of paper. He said it's shaped like a ball, which is exactly what the world is. Or you take astronomy. 
Bible talks about astronomy. For hundreds and hundreds of years, it was believed that you could actually number the stars. In 125 AD, the astronomer Hipparchus said there were 1,022 stars. In 200 AD, the famous astronomer Ptolemy said there are 1,026 stars. It was not until 1600 that Galileo said, you can't number the stars. God said that all along in Jeremiah 33, as the hosts of heaven cannot be numbered and the sands of the sea cannot be numbered. You go to hospitals today. Here's just one other, just one final example. Up until the middle of the 19th century, the death rate in hospitals from, from unexpected diseases was epidemic. As many as 30% of women died giving birth and they couldn't figure it out. Why are so many people dying? We bring them here, we try to give them the best of care. We try with you know, the best prenatal care, the best postnatal care. And yet 30% of women in the middle of the 19th century died from having babies. Well, a young doctor in Vienna noticed that doctors would examine a patient and then without washing their hands, they would just go straight to the next ward and examine expectant mothers. Now this is before they knew about microscopic diseases and bacteria. So he began to tell his colleagues, look, maybe you begin to wash, you ought to really start washing your hands. So they would put a water in a bowl and they would begin to wash their hands. And even though the death rate went down, it didn't go down far enough and they couldn't figure out what was going on until finally, some doctors finally realized that you don't just wash your hands and still water, you need to wash your hands in running water. Because they didn't realize back then that even if you wash your hands in a bowl of water, you leave the germs in the water. And so you're going to take those germs in your hands with you. Well, guess what? Dr. God said that all along. He told the Israelites in Leviticus chapter 15, and when the one with the discharge is cleansed of his discharge, then he shall count for himself seven days for his cleansing and wash his clothes, and he shall bathe his body in fresh water. You know what the word fresh literally means in the Hebrew language? It means running water. I mean, everywhere you turn, you keep reading, yep, the word is truth, the word is truth, the word is truth, the word is truth. And I could go on and give you another example and others, I won't do that. I'm just simply saying, every day, Dr. Aiken, my confidence in God's word grows every single day. Every time I read it, I go, man, that's truth, that's truth, that's truth, that's truth, that's truth. And it's every area, historically, archeology span keeps unearthing all the time. Luke told us that's where it was. Luke told us that's who the ruler was. You know, and we act surprised. Why act surprised? If the Bible is God's word, we should expect all truth to be God's truth and this truth to be always accurate. So, last thing. We should believe in the sacred authority of the Bible. You cannot believe in the sacred authority of the Bible if you don't believe in the scientific accuracy of the Bible. But I realize that's not why the Bible was primarily written. So the last thing I want to say is, we should believe in the spiritual answers of the Bible. I want to wrap this up. I've told you today, and I hope you've bought into it a little bit. I know I'm not a science. I get that. But I've hoped that you understand, and I hope you've been reminded today of the fact that even though the Bible's not a scientific textbook, when it deals with science, it does so truthfully. No, it's not just a history book. But when it deals with history, it does so truthfully. No, it's not just a book of morality and what's right and wrong. But when it deals with morality, it does so truthfully. Now, let me tell you why all this is so important to me. And let me tell you why this is a passion for me. Because it's something else that Jesus said. He said in John 5, 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. 
So I don't want you to leave here misunderstanding what I've said today. I understand what the primary purpose of this book is. The primary purpose of this book is not to tell us how the heavens go. The primary purpose is to tell us how to go to heaven. It's not primarily just to teach us how life began. It's to teach us how life is to be lived. It's not just to teach us how you got here, but why you are here and what you're to do until you leave here. No, I get it. So I want to say to any scientist out there, the Bible's not a book of biology. I get it. But it will lead you to the Lamb of God that can take away your sins. No, the Bible's not a book of botany. But it can lead you to the Rose of Sharon who can give off the fragrance of salvation. No, I get it. It's not a book of astronomy. But it can lead you to the bright and the morning star whose light can guide you into the presence of God. And it's not a book of medicine but it can lead you to the great physician who can heal your heart and cure you of the greatest disease in the world today called sin. So I close with another skeptic, probably the most famous atheist in the world. And he's a brilliant man. His name is Stephen Hawking. He's a man I pray for regularly. He's a man I pray that one day would really see the light of God's truth and God's word. A man that desperately needs Jesus. And the reason why I have such a burden for him is because of what he said. He said, although science may solve the problem of how the universe began, it cannot answer the question, why does the universe bother to exist? I don't know the answer to that. May sound arrogant, but I do. His name is Jesus, the Son of God. And you can find all you need to know about him and yourself in this book, which is the Word of God. And the good news is, it doesn't take rocket science to get into this book and discover for yourself that this book really is true. And when you know the truth, the truth will set you free. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I am so thankful for your word. It's the only book I have in all my library I never get tired of reading. Even this morning when I got up and read your word, it spoke to me afresh and anew. So Lord, I I pray for these wonderful students out here. I pray, Heavenly Father, that they can know that they can go into a world filled with uncertainty. And they have a certain word from you. That they they can go into a world, Lord, of so much confusion. And they can have a book that is clear as day. And I thank you, Heavenly Father, that when they walk into a world that is full of heartache, they have the one book that can heal any heart, solve any problem, and save any person. We thank you for your word in Jesus' name. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost, dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. 
You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We cover your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.